This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 16, Episode 45. This is Writing Excuses, World and Character Part 2, Moral Frame. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Dan. I'm Fonda. I'm Mary Robinette. And I'm morally ambiguous. (laughs) We are talking about, uh, following on the conversation last time about character bias, this time we're talking about moral frame. Fonda, what do you mean by that? So moral frame is an element of world building that I don't think gets talked about a lot. And I want to talk about it because I have noticed that uh, many people refer to the characters in my books as morally gray or morally ambiguous. And it got to the point where I started to kind of think about it and dissect that a little bit. And um, what I realized is uh, what there's a difference between characters who are morally gray because they are acting against what society tells them they should be doing, And there are characters who are morally gray because they are acting in accordance with what society tells them they should be doing. Um, So uh, I have responded oftentimes to people saying that I have morally gray characters by saying, no, I don't actually have morally gray characters. I have characters who live in a morally gray society. And what I actually write is morally gray societies. And this is something that I've realized um, over my six books is that that is something that I tend to gravitate towards. And I mean, honestly, what society is not morally gray, right? Like Mm -hmm. we all live in a society that is full of moral ambiguity. So um, we uh, have a moral framework that is given to us by our society. Um, And, uh, you know, whether or not each individual person adheres to that and and to what extent they adhere to that is another issue. But that moral frame depends on our time and our culture um, and uh, our, you know, what, what uh, society type of society we live in and, and differs widely. I mean, we are seeing right now, we're seeing, uh, we're, ha- we're seeing a, a global response to the pandemic in which that, that is, sh- that is um, highlighting differences in moral frame when it comes to uh, how much we value individual freedom versus um, duty to community, for example. And there are times in human civilization when that, hu- that moral frame has been very different. There are, uh, at one point, you know, there have been um, cultures where human sacrifice was not just acceptable, but was actually the morally right thing to do. Uh, so um, your moral frame of your fictional world uh, is going to be determined by these world-building decisions that you make. And they include things like history, you know, the, the environment, like Mary Robinette mentioned a few episodes ago, um, the governance of, of that society, and also its magic system and its technology, if you have those speculative elements in there. And all of that has a really powerful effect on the customs, the social norms, um, the behaviors of people, what they what they um, accept or don't accept, and then that has a cascading effect on your character's goals and desires and attitudes and behavior. Yeah, I I ran into this when I was writing my partial series, my uh, YA post apocalypse 
uh, trilogy. They, there's a plague that destroys the world. Very timely story right now that I don't promote <laughs> much in these pandemic times. But um, I realized quickly as I was doing this world building that I had created a situation in which the characters were faced literally with the extinction of the human race. Like that was what they were up against. And when that is the failure mode of your society, a lot of things that would be completely immoral in any other situation become, as you said, not only the right thing, but the responsible thing to do. Um, And some of the aspects of their culture in particular regarding reproductive rights seem completely beyond the pale to us today. But in the society of the book, that was the right thing to do for a lot of the characters. That was the way to save the human race. And so this is, I think, a really important part of world building. Yeah, and it's, I think one of the the other things for me when you're you're talking about these morally gray worlds is to, to understand that none of them exist, uh, you know, we, we keep talking about this, none of them exist in a vacuum, but this also includes a time continuum. So one of the things that your characters are going to be doing is pushing every, historically speaking, uh, every society thinks that they are more enlightened than the society before them. Um, there, there are very few exceptions where this doesn't happen. Uh, and, and when it does happen, it's the, oh, in, you know, the golden times, the golden times. And what you're remembering is generally your childhood when you didn't have power and when things went well for you because people were doing things for you. So, so this is part of why we get these these twenty year cycles uh, in in societies that there is this push and pull between um, a, a resistance to authority figures and wanting to have authority for yourself. So when you've got uh, when you've got these characters and you're trying to figure out kind of where those moral gray areas are, you also want to think about what society, what their parents' society looked like. Like, what are they rebelling against? And what did society look like when they were children? Like, what are they, what is their, their ideal of things were comfortable then, if, if assuming they came from a comfortable childhood? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it, I think one thing to think about is if your character is an anomaly in some way, uh, why is that the case? Um, and if they're, they're acting against the norms or the expected behavior, um, then why them? Uh, why now? And what are the logical consequences of them doing that? Um, to create like a, a very simple example, let's say you have a fantasy story in which um, only the boys are trained to be dragon riders. And you have a character who is going to be the first uh, female dragon rider. You can't just have a story in which uh, through grit and perseverance and pluck, she becomes the first female dragon rider. Everyone claps and cheers. Uh, curtains come down, exit. Um, because if just through hard work and grit and pluck, a woman could become a dragon rider, then someone else before her would have already done it. So what is it about this time or her circumstances or you know, changing society or, you know, something going on in the world, uh, you know, was there, is there something that is happening that is, um, that is making her become the first female dragon rider? And what is, what are the consequences of that, um, on her and, and her community? So, um, 
I think if when you ignore uh, culture and environment and moral frame, that's where you potentially get stories that feel like um, modern era 21st century people dressed up and dropped into the trappings of a fantasy world. Let's pause here for our book of the week, uh, which Fonda, I believe, comes from you this time. Yeah, so my book of the week is The Traitor Baru Cormorant by Seth Dickinson. Um, and the reason why I want to uh, make this my pick is that it is uh, it is not an easy read. It is a pretty harrowing read, actually. Um, so be prepared, have have some, uh, some tissues with you. It is a, a great example, though, of a book in which the character uh, is existing under fighting and trying to change a world um, that is governed by a very strict... Uh, very homophobic moral frame. And so, uh, you know, it is the world itself is uncomfortable to live in, but it's a great example of how um, the author, Seth, uses this moral frame to advance the journey of uh, the character. Cool. That is The Traitor Baru Cormorant by Seth Dickinson. All right. So um, talking about characters who are anomalies within their culture, uh, I think brings us to a question about uh, characters who all think alike or characters who don't think alike. Uh, if we need to be careful of anomalies, does that mean that everyone's going to end up with the same kind of perspective in the same moral frame? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a trap that I think uh, people fall into sometimes and use to excuse um, things like, so if they, you know, you, you end up with uh, situations where, well, you know, every, that's just how it was back then. Everyone was sexist, you know, and that that's used to justify, um, you know, a a world that is portrayed as just being unremittingly sexist, but that's, um, you know, that is not an excuse because in any given society at any given time, people are interacting with the moral frame in different ways. You know, they are either embracing it, they're reinforcing it or upholding it. They're opposing it. They're questioning it. They are trying to change it. And we see that very clearly in our own world, right? That we uh, you have many different types of people, factions of people who, who are trying to push and pull at this moral frame in different ways. Um, and we are in constant conversation with her society's moral frame. And that would be the same in your fictional society as well. So you are choosing to, to tell that story and to, um, to show the relationship that your characters are having in a moral frame. And it is actually lazy and boring to have all your characters interacting with the moral frame in the same way. I got to take a class by Donald Moss in which he was talking about the dichotomies of society and that there's, that that we, we tend to, when we go into fiction, think of these polar extremes um, that either someone is the super sports fan or someone hates all sports. And that most people actually exist somewhere along a, a spectrum. And so there might be someone like who enjoys uh, a particular sport, but not all sports. Or there's someone who's a fan of this team, but is okay with, you know, not seeing anything else. Or there might be someone who's like has all of the televisions in their house tuned to a different sports game happening simultaneously. And that it's, if, if you start thinking about these, then you can use the polar extremes as a a kind of mechanism to find where those gray areas are. And it doesn't have to be about sports, obviously, but the, but it's it's an interesting thing. Um, and one of the things that he says that that uh, as a good thinking tool for this is like, what is the thing that 
they are absolutely wrong about the other end of that spectrum. So like the person who doesn't watch sports at all saying, well, sports don't have any, any, uh, any uh, drama or narrative at all. And without understanding that there is a narrative that, that is brought to it. And they're wrong about that. So like looking for the thing that your character fundamentally believes, I think Dan calls this the lie that your character believes, but about a, a big societal position can uh, can can give you some interesting interesting ground to play in. Now, a very useful real world principle here, uh, and it's one that most folks aren't familiar with because uh, the establishment doesn't want us familiar with it. It's called jury nullification, and it is the idea that when you are a juror. Even if the case is super clear, yep, the defendant is absolutely guilty of, I'm going to make something up, uh, using, uh, using potions after 9 p.m. Okay, they're absolutely, absolutely guilty of that. And the punishment is something horrible. Um, but if the jury feels like, wow, that's a terrible law. Who picked 9 p.m.? Who picked potions? You know, I sometimes drink potions after 9 p.m. The jury can say not guilty. And the jury, in legal terms, is allowed to be wrong. But their decision is final. This idea of jury nullification is built into our system. And it is a method whereby a group of 12 people can decide that they don't like the law or they don't think the defendant should be acquitted or they've all taken bribes and now we really are in a terribly morally ambiguous. That's actually not ambiguous. That's just really dark brown. Um, the, uh, but the principle of jury nullification will never be explained to a jury in a courtroom because none of the attorneys, nor the judge, nor the defendant, even, nobody wants the jurors to know that the truth is we don't actually have to listen to you. We can just sit here and twiddle our thumbs. And at the end, we can decide something. It occurs to me as we're talking about this moral framework, that it is a really good way of talking about subgroups within a society as well. Uh, and my own religion is the one that leaps to mind. I'm uh, Mormon. And most people, I suspect, have a fairly solid stereotype in their minds of what a Mormon is like. Whereas for me, living inside of that subgroup, there are countless, there are thousands of different ways to be Mormon. Um, and I am very, very different in a lot of ways from my neighbors, while also being very similar in maybe more visible ways, which is what the outside rest of society sees when they look at us. Yeah. And this is a, it, that's something you can really do in your fiction is to break down the idea of there being a, a, a homogenous group, right? And um, you see this in something like Star Trek, for example, right? Like the original series has all Cleons are warlike, right? Like there's just no nuance to the Cleons. They are all a type. They're all warlike. They're all just about dying in battle. And then in, in future seasons of Star Trek, you start to break that down. You actually see Cleons as individuals and they are not all, they are not, you know, they have a moral frame that is around war and being warlike and honor, 
But within that, that moral, that Cleon society, which does have an overarching moral frame, there's many different um, personalities and, and they're, they are different on their spectrum of how much they adhere to that moral frame or not. Um, and they're in, in conversation with it. So um, yeah, keep that in mind as well when, when you're thinking about moral frame and um, how your characters interact with it. Um, I uh, think that a, a useful thing to do when you're thinking about morally gray characters is I like to contrast um, someone like uh, uh, Walter White in Breaking Bad, right? Who is, um, he is uh, morally gray because he is, he's breaking the law of our society. Like clearly uh, running a meth lab is illegal and we can all agree that because we're, we're, we're all sharing a certain moral frame um, with that Walter White is, is acting in opposition to. Another one of my favorite shows is the miniseries Rome. And um, in that show, the main characters uh, kill and um, crucify and do all sorts of horrible things. um, But they are doing it, in accordance to their moral frame, because they're soldiers and generals and leaders in ancient Rome. Um, And so they are, from our perspective, 21st century viewers, uh, acting immorally, but they are actually acting morally within their own society. Uh, So that um, actually leads me to the homework, which is what I want um, listeners to do this week, take about maybe a handful, four to six characters um, in stories that that you enjoy that you would consider morally gray um, and see if you can identify if they are acting in opposition to or in accordance to what their society or group um, would be saying is allowed or not allowed. Fantastic. There's your homework. This is writing excuses. You are out of excuses. Now go write. This episode of Writing Excuses was engineered by Marshall Carr Jr. and mastered by Alex Jackson. Your hosts were Dan Wells, Fonda Lee, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. To learn more about Writing Excuses, visit patreon.com forward slash writing excuses. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like... Do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. 